You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Today's podcast is with Andrea Small who is a design leader, strategist, and educator. She currently teaches at the D School at Stanford University and leads storytelling and design strategy for Samsung Research America's R&D innovation team. She has worked with some of the world's most iconic brands, including the Nike Foundation, Starbucks, Facebook, iRobot, and Herman Miller. With her co-author, Kelly Schmoody, she recently published Navigating Ambiguity, Creating Opportunity in a World of Unknowns. Enjoy the pod. Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Andrew Small, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. You start this book with a really sobering statistic. You write, quote, even though cosmo- uh, cosmologists say we basically understand only about 4% of our universe, we still seem to think we should be able to control things and solve any and every problem in two shakes of a bunny tail, end quote. And this reminded me of Nick Epley's research, who we've worked with at the University of Chicago, that in our communication with other individuals, we maybe get it right 20 to 30% of the time. That seems, seems generous to <laughs> seems me. Generous. <laughs> All right. So what, like, how do you come to this conversation, this topic? Did you like, did you know the science before you had the instinct or was the instinct there and that led you to the science? I, I don't even think there was, there was neither instinct nor science at the beginning. It was just a lot of questions. Uh, the, the topic came about from a teaching fellowship that I did at the D school mm-hmm. with two other teaching fellows. And right off the bat, we were just thrown into so much uncertainty and ambiguity that we kind of turned the mirror around to the D school and asked them, why is there so much ambiguity here? How do you expect people to be so good at navigating ambiguity without really teaching them how to do it? And can it be taught? Mm 
And that sort of opened the door to all of the research and writing and teaching about ambiguity that's been happening in the D school in the last seven, seven, eight years. Interesting. All right. So we should probably define ambiguity. Can you do that for us? Yes, uh, definitely a wonderful existential challenge, defining the ambiguity. Uh-huh. So we f- look at the root word. It is uh, two words from Latin meaning to act and both ways. So ambiguity is about holding something um, with multiple meanings. It's about understanding things in more than one way, it's about multiplicities and dualities. Another way that I like to frame ambiguity is that it is different than uncertainty. Uncertainty implies that there is something to be certain about. We confuse uh, uncertainty and ambiguity a lot. And probably in this conversation in design, in innovation, in consulting, we just lump them together. Ambiguity, uncertainty, the unknown, um, but they're they're technically different. Ambiguity is really about that uh, multiplicity or duality of meaning. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, too, is I don't know how much you n- know about improvisation. And I certainly know that that's ingrained in some of the D school uh, with some of the teachers. But we, essentially, improvisation is a practice in handling and being in ambiguous situations and and it's and it's a skill that can be learned uh and it's a practice i mean it's like you just don't do go to the gym once and you're done it's but you have to continually do it um but i think when when i was reading the book um and, and you you write in the book quote our response to ambiguity both our interpretations and our emotional response is not objective it's deeply connected to experience context history and character and and this is like this is really rich stuff, and it, it makes for great stories, and it makes for great conversations, but it's also really hard because it's so context-laden, right? Absolutely. We have a, a slide, and we just did a workshop this week by co-author Kelly Schmoody and I, where we just have a slide that says, you know, this bleep is hard. It's yeah. hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not an easy subject. Uh, I love that you have a chapter uh, titled Brain Stuff. Uh, So I want to talk a little bit about brain stuff. Um, uh, Tell us what is going on in the brain as it's related to ambiguity. Absolutely. So we evolved essentially to keep ourselves safe, to keep ourselves alive. So uh, the example that we use in the book and kind of a classic example is you're wandering past a dark cave. Uh, There could be a cool cave drawing in there or something else, or there could be a bear in there that's going to eat you. Your brain tells you that there's going to be a bear in there that can eat you because the brain wants to keep you alive. Its its main instinct is to let you not die. And so it immediately fills in the not knowing with something bad, the worst case scenario, the thing that could possibly harm you to keep you safe. And that's awesome. That's what happens in our amygdala, or as people call it, the lizard brain, you know, that is really just processing um, immediate reactions to things. And then in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, we start to think about things at a different level. We start to uh, move past that initial reaction of this thing's going to kill me to I can really sit with this. It's not going to kill me. It's going to be okay. But, you know, when we're experiencing ambiguity or some type of unknown, it's actually more stressful to not know than to know something bad is going to happen. So we would rather know something is going to be bad than have uncertainty. And when we're talking about the brain, the 
there are different parts and pieces that kind of separate, well, now we're in a global pandemic, what's going to happen versus how do I, you know, I want to brainstorm around this certain topic, you know, what, what are all the ideas? It's the same exact part of the brain. So if your amygdala is already, you know, at full force, then you're asking your amygdala to do something else as well on top of that to, to be creative. And that's where the difficulty comes in, I think. Yeah, this was, this was the topic of conversation in therapy yesterday when I was talking to my therapist, which was, I mean, there's so much going on in the world that is uncertain. And it also feels like that's happening in many of our personal lives as well. And I was talking, I told her the story about it. I was walking the dog the other day and literally there were like five incidents that happened that were adjacent to me. They weren't really at me, but they were adjacent and they were unsettling. And this was going around a single block in a fairly good neighborhood in Chicago. Um, and I, this feels like a very shared experience with almost anyone I talk to. Of course, you know, every time we encounter other people, we encounter uncertainty. You know, human beings are an infinite amount of variables. So yes, when you step outside of your door, undoubtedly, there's going to be something that you didn't expect that you're going to see or feel or hear or, you know, witness whatever. Um, and, you know, although that is difficult, we need to put ourselves in that situation to help keep us, our curiosity uh, right. alive. You know, we've been all stuck inside for, uh, in lockdown, we're stuck inside, it becomes boring, you know, where we lose that um, serendipity of seeing things out in the real world. So, but you never know, you know, yeah, you could go out to walk the dog and a comet crashes <laughs> to the earth. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to walk the dog today. Uh, <laughs> you, you did the study in 2017 with hundreds of students that included them picking a metaphor that best described their relationship to ambiguity. Can you talk to us about that study? Yes, absolutely. So Kelly Schmoody and the teaching team at the D school at the time created this framework for writing a metaphor about ambiguity that is simply ambiguity is like blank because blank. And they gave them to students, uh, 150 students filled these in. We continue to do this exercise to this day. At this point, we've done it with about a thousand people. Um, But in the early days when they did it with students, they started to notice some commonalities in their, uh, their metaphors. And as they synthesized those down, they started to see if a student had less experience with design, less experience with creative problem solving, less experience with design, design thinking, in this case, less experience with improv or being able to to, uh, feed off of the ideas of others or collaborate with others, then they had more of a mindset of endure. Like, I just need to get through this thing. And as soon as it's done, we're going to, you know, I'm over it. We're moving on. Um, The engage metaphors really spoke more towards people like knew that ambiguity was this layer and you could kind of engage with it as you want uh, to, to help your creativity. And then the last one, Embrace, was, uh, you know, people had metaphors like ambiguity is a rainforest because it's dark and mysterious, mm. but beautiful. And, you know, uh, it was more about really living a life where you love ambiguity and you want to put yourself in that situation. Um, so the, you know, the metaphors that we get to this day are always, always different. We hear new things every single time. It's kind of an amazing exercise to, to do with groups. So digging into so this idea about embracing ambiguity, I was reminded of this phrase that uh, a, a Second City alum and a sort of legendary improv teacher, uh, Rick Thomas, says, where he says, you need to fall into the crack in the game. 
and that's when you have this mistake on stage, but you go with it, and the audience is delighted because they can like, like see that you're 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 doing that. And again, that that's I think that when you talk about being immersed in not knowing, that's the muscle that we're kind of looking for, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, falling into the the crack is a great way to to put it. But yes, those un- unexpected moments that arise, if you're in that sort of enduring phase, that might throw you off. That might, you know, halt things for you. But if you're in the moment and you're reacting and going with it, then it could be a point of inspiration. Uh, you write in the book, uh, quote, when the unknown feels too uncomfortable, they might rigidly cling to the first thing that they find, unquote. And what this reminded me of is uh, Mick Napier, who's a director at Second City, uh, before, rehe- before rehearsal start for a new show, um, he says, inevitably, there's an actor and actress who says, I just really want to play an instrument in the show. And he always says to them, absolutely, you're going to play an instrument in the show, knowing he has no intention of them playing an instrument. They're just trying to hang on to something because it's going to be chaos. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You just absolutely want at least one known in there to that point of, even if it's bad, even if you know, like, you know, there's a, there's a study that we reference in the book about participants, uh, lifting rocks in a video game. And if there's a snake underneath the rock, they received an electric shock. Mm. And the the study was to gauge stress levels in uncertainty. And what it found was that people preferred to know they were about to get electrocuted than to not know what was going to happen. People just prefer to have something to hang on to in those situations. And so, yes, people bring in their own ideas. People bring in their own treasure chest and hold on to that because letting that go and being open is terrifying. Um, when we hold open auditions at Second City, which means like anyone can, can audition, and there's like thousands of people, and those um, early sessions, some interesting folks show up. Um, but what we can tell is the people who are complete novice improvisers, they tend to do a lot of counting or talk about things in length. And they also do a lot of digging if they're looking for an action and that ah. not much more. But I always yep. found that interesting. We're like, what, what is and, and, and our whole thing was, well, they're just like, they don't want to do. They're trying to cling to anything. And, they, and time feels like a thing maybe that, that they, they can, you know, a simple thing that they can go to. Absolutely. And we do this in the design process all the time of wanting to put things into frameworks or creating lists or, you know, time, Anywhere. some of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, Nothing exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, talk to us about Wayfinders. You introduce us to these Polynesian navigators. Yes. Well, navigating ambiguity is not something we invented, you know, <laughs> <laughs> certainly. Stanford uh, this didn't is invent that? <laughs> no, no. Um, but they do make 30% off of it. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Um, no, we did not invent it. And as part of the research, uh, Kelly actually had the opportunity to interview uh, folks from the Polynesian Navigation Society directly to understand how they navigate, how they use the stars and the ocean currents and the weather patterns and the you know migratory patterns of birds to understand where they are and navigate uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles without without uh, technology, without the tools that we know today with just the skills and, you know, trust that they have. And we learned from them that, first of all, it's all about balance and staying attuned to the moment, staying hyper aware and uh, 
being able to act. So taking action and responding, acting and flexibility, you know, being able to adapt to all those changing conditions and acting on it. And the the thing that I like the most about the Wayfinder metaphor is that they can't get blown off course because there is no course, Mm. you know, they know where they're going. So if you imagine kind of the more of the European kind of uh, uh, boat travel, (laughs) there's a destination. And if they get blown off course, they might be really screwed. (laughs) You know, they they have to get back on course in order to get where they're going. And that's not how Wayfinders navigate. There is no specific course to get blown off of, but you do have a purposeful vision of where you're going. And we thought that that was just like a, a beautiful way to understand why it's so important to um, to be able to build those wayfinding skills. Yeah, I really like this in the book. You, you say this a, a few different times, and one of them is here where you say, quote, no single tactic works all the time, and a tactic that works well now might be kryptonite later. What you choose to do is context dependent, end quote. And this is my, this is my, so I read a lot of business books and everyone's got their seven plans for X and their 10, you know, steps to do Z. And it's like, that may be fine in one or two or three contexts, but we, we are, we have many. And, 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 and so like, and I think this is something we share in terms of um, D school stuff and improv, which is like, this ain't one solution. What we're giving you is a, a toolkit to use in a variety of situations. Yep, exactly. Um, We wanted to have a list of 10 finite tools to navigate ambiguity, to tell people, here are the 10 tools that you need to navigate ambiguity. And if someone had that list, then they would be rich and we wouldn't continue to have business books that are like the three ways to blah or the 10 ways to blah, blah, blah. Like nobody has the solution, which is why we don't have a finite toolkit offered in the book. Instead, we have these things to balance to you know, look in, look out, zoom in, zoom out. These different methodologies of experiencing the unknown or navigating through the unknown, because you know your compass might be great for what you're doing to navigate this particular thing, but it's not going to do anything for you if you're you know navigating in the dark or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, the other thing that I think too, because uh, you have metaphors, you have art, you have uh, great lines of poetry and and great thinking. And I think all of that points to what, what you're suggesting, which is like, uh, you got to, it's the whole of human experience. When, when we talk about bringing our whole self and the reason we say that is because something from your childhood might be a key to unlocking a problem that's a business problem now. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we, uh, we encountered a lot of struggle in writing this book about that because on one hand, we want it to be a business book. We want it to be accessible to everyone. We want to focus on creativity. And we didn't, didn't want it to be a self-help book. We didn't want it to be a sort of like lifestyle guru type thing. And my opinion of it was that you simply can't untangle them. We've had this mindset of work and life for so long, and that's just not reality. We bring ourselves and all of our experiences, good or bad, into the situation. And I think we've just been, it's been drilled into our heads to be ashamed of any sort of tragedy or whatever that might have happened to you that then changes your outlook. But to that point earlier of your context, your your background, your history, who you are, all of that matters. And it plays into how you respond to the unknown. You mentioned looking in and looking out. Let's let's talk about that. What 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 does that mean in this context? 
in this context, uh, the very first step, of course, is awareness, you know, knowing what ambiguity is, knowing how your body is reacting to it. So, you know, for example, I'm sweating furiously because I'm scared. (laughs) I can't tell, just so you know. (laughs) Okay, good. Good. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I know how my body reacts to certain types of ambiguities and you know, different things. And that's great. And I might feel like I'm really awesome at navigating ambiguity, but if my teammates aren't, or my organization isn't, and we're working together and we consider ambiguity as a team sport, then I could be aligned with myself and know what my tools are. But at the same time, you also need to to look at the people around you and see how they're responding to ambiguity and what role you have in their their feelings So part of it is, you know, just you focusing on you and then engaging with other people, sharing how you feel with other people to help them feel not so alone or, uh, you know, help them figure out what works for them as well. Um, uh, I I co-led a a thing called the Second Science Project at the University of Chicago, uh, where we looked at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation and vice versa. And we talk, and and we have a lot of exercises in being others-focused, right? And it's a whole improv thing, and it's certainly a thing in in the D school and design design thinking. And then, but we got introduced to um, uh, self-verification theory by William Swan. Do you know about that? Mm-mm, no, I don't know. So it's this idea, which is, you, you know, we, we think we want to be seen as our best selves, our prettiest selves, our smartest selves. But in fact, what Swan has shown is that people want to be seen as they see themselves. So if I see myself as clumsy, I need you to see me as clumsy so you won't throw me a ball. But of course, I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's that, that layer deeper that you get to where you're like, what is getting, how do we know? How do we get to knowing? And certainly Nick Epley's work talks about Ask a lot of questions, you know, and, and, and share, share some personal details, even minute details. And that gets you where a person then you can, they might be, you might be uh, getting them to signal you in terms of a, a more knowing. Exactly. The, the first story that we share in that chapter about look in, look out is from the designer, Chris Rudd, actually shout out Chris Rudd. He's a Chicago person and he now teaches at the Institute of Design. I lived in Chicago for three years oh. and uh, went to the Institute of Design at Kinsey and LaSalle. It's now moved to West Chicago. So mm-hmm. um, shout out to Chris, but we have a story about him in the book about beginning the project fellowship that he was doing and feeling so lost and uncertain about what he was going to do. And he simply shared that with one of the other project fellows. You know, I'm feeling really lost. I'm feeling like I have no idea what's going on. And the other project fellow was like, yeah, me too. Mm. And that cracked open something totally different for both of them. Just sharing, asking how that other person was feeling and hearing being vulnerable as, you know, Bernie Brown, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you've talked to, um, being able to ask the person that question and opening that dialogue changed how both of them responded to that amount of ambiguity. And in fact, they went on to, you know, finding a pattern of helping each other out in certain ways when they were getting stuck, not by saying, okay, I'm stuck on my project. So Kelly, come here and help me on my project. Instead, I would say, I'm stuck on my project. Kelly, what can I help you with on yours? Right. And 
working on the other thing to kind of shift the way the brain is thinking. And it actually helps you work on your own stuff by helping others. Mm, so interesting. I mean, I, I, it, it's funny. It's like you, you can have all the knowledge in the world if you don't know how to apply it or you don't have the skills to apply it. It's rather meaningless. Um, and, and I think this is a sort of a, a key area, which is like, how, how do you get to that place? And I know we, we lost our daughter, Nora, to cancer about three years ago. She was 17. And we, it was a very, I kept this open blog and I asked for help and I got help. And it's like, and I know that that's what, what like has sort of saved us through this really terrible journey. Um, but it also fundamentally changed me as a human being in terms of the things that you're talking about. Yes. And I don't know that that happens without some sort of upset, which is terrible to think of, but. You know, know, it's, it's, it's a conundrum, you know, we, we, it's, it's part of the reason too, that we have two authors on this book. It can't just be from one point of view. You know, I completely agree. I had a, like an unusual amount of tragedy happen when I was young. Mm-hmm. My father suddenly passed away. My best friend was killed by a drunk driver when she was 19. We had these huge tragedies and they kept like compounding on one another. So I am who I am because of those tragedies. And it shapes how I respond to uncertainty and the unknown. And that's not going to be how everyone sees it, but I have to represent that point of view all the time because that's who I am. And it might not be somebody else's point of view, but we have to make room for both of those. The like, you know, my, my role at the, at the D school and on the book always felt kind of like the, you know, design consultant who's like seen it all and doesn't believe in improv. There is a line in the book that says I have a phobia of improv. It's yeah. true. A little bit of a phobia of improv. That's fine. That's so fine. we have, we have to have uh, both points of view. And I think uh, I I'm hopeful that we're moving away from a world where you have to keep that stuff secret and hidden right. and have shame about it instead of bringing it into your work and life and family and friends. And it just being a part of who you are and how you think. Yeah. Well, a, that's what the literature shows us. Right. So the, the evidence is there. And, and I think that, you know, businesses, the business world often actually catch, sometimes gets to the stuff early. Cause that they, I, I, when I get, I go to speak to lots of different I do keynotes and workshops and things like that a lot in HR. And my theory is like in 10 years, HR is going to be the most powerful division in a company because they're going to figure out that if they need their people to be peak performers, they have been doing it wrong. Just paying mm-hmm. people more money is not going to make them peak performers. And what we're talking before, the, this idea of, of not being able to share your pain at work, where it just makes you less productive. And, yeah. and, and, and it's also a waste of an amazing resource because guess what? Your people at work probably do want to help. Absolutely. And we know that there's more diversity than is represented in leadership today. And that includes different types of trauma. That includes different cultural perspectives. And as we move away from same, 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 and trying to introduce more diversity of people, we're going to get more diversity of thought. And it's no longer going to be like, you have to look this way or talk this way or sound this way or think this way in order to be a leader. And it's going to be absolutely messy until we get there, but I'm hopeful that we will, you know, as we start to see different types of leadership and different ways of being creative. Uh, one of the things uh, I've actually never read about this, uh, and it's in the Focus on Focus chapter, where you talk about the Mona Lisa. Can you talk to us about that, that concept inside there? 
Yes, absolutely. So uh, we we use the Mona Lisa as an example because, first of all, there's a painting technique called sfumato, which is an Italian word for meaning up in smoke. And that's the technique that da Vinci used to paint the Mona Lisa in these tiny, tiny uh, brush strokes that kind of give it this kind of fuzzy atmospheric quality. And another thing about the Mona Lisa is Mona Lisa's smile. Like, what is she smiling at? Is she is she smiling? Is, we can't really tell. And in breaking it down, we actually know that her mouth isn't in the shape of a smile, but her eyes are doing that like smizing thing. So we, uh, in our peripheral vision, we we think that she's smiling from the shadows on her face. But if you look at her mouth, we don't think she's smiling. So it's an enigma. It's why people gravitate towards it. It's it's the ambiguity of interpretation of the Mona Lisa, and that sort of up in smoke quality and not. Uh, creating something that is so concrete um, that gives people an ability to map themselves onto that piece of art and make a connection with it and an emotional connection with it. You know, either you love it or you hate it because it's targeting that part of your brain that can't, doesn't settle on anything. It just stays open. So interesting. All right. In a moment, we're going to ask you for a yes and story, but before we do that, I really want to talk to you about, because this is a thing we're struggling with, and I think everyone's struggling with, especially in college. So we know how important it is uh, to learn to live inside discomfort. We know this. We know that it's powerful and that that if we're going to raise good, strong human beings, they're going to have to work through challenges, which means they're going to be uh, challenged. We also have learned a lot about boundaries. And that that and they, that they didn't exist, and, and that's problematic. This is a tension, and I'm curious where where you are with, with this in, in in your world. Yes, and unfortunately, with ambiguity, there is no solid answer to it. It's incredibly context dependent. I'm just recently learning about boundaries myself. I do thank my therapist in the thank yous at the end of the book. As we all and, yes, I'm, I'm experimenting with boundaries and understanding what they are myself. So everyone's going to be on a different, a different path. Um, it, we have a lot to learn from each other. I, I recently noticed, you know, I think that cats are like really good at boundaries. <laughs> Maybe that's why we gravitate towards them. But um, in order to step into that place of discomfort, you are step going over some kind of boundary. Mm-hmm. And in the book, we talk about um, basically understanding your own boundaries and understanding the boundaries of others and working within that. And to back to the context point, they change. My boundaries today might be totally different because I'm so burned out on watching the news and January 6th and you know all of that. So I, my boundaries are different in terms of work today, then they might be on Monday when I've had some time to, you know, process and think about it. So, you know, starting to think what type of boundaries, particularly in the workplace, do you need in order to do your best work? And that might simply be having a clearer idea of the roles of people on your team. That might be one boundary that you could say, I need this in order to kind of eliminate one type of unknown so that I can be creative in a different way. And then also working with other people's boundaries. Again, back to the point of diversity in thinking and in our workplace, if someone works better, heads down, 
alone. That's their boundary. How do you then collaborate with them? How do you help them with within their process? Or how do you how do you work with them instead of forcing them to do right. what you do best? It, it, yeah, uh, the Yes and podcast has had a, a lot of um, uh, no lately, like the importance <laughs> of no, and and because that that in in many ways the no is a yes and to yourself. It's like I. I have a thing right now. I, I was talking about this with my wife. Like, I really can't do two more than two evening events in a, in a given week. If I mm-hmm. if I go three, I I have lost my fuel, and mm-hmm. I I don't know if that's going to be true forever from here on in. But right now, that is just true for me. And so, like, I hit I, someone asked me to do something. I'm like, I've already gone out twice this week. No, mm-hmm. yeah. Happening. I think the the pandemic has uh, made people really look inward and start to understand what those boundaries are and get comfortable with saying what those boundaries are. I'm not doing that thing because it, you know it. I need to focus on me, or not even saying what it, I, I'm just not doing that thing. Like we're we're all getting better at understanding boundaries. I think from this f- kind of forced experiment of isolation. Yeah, I think so too. All right, do you have a yes and story for us? I do. Um. So my yes and story comes from right out of graduate school. My very, very, very first job, I worked at T-Mobile in Seattle in the Creation Center, which was their innovation center. Um, we had just done our first improv workshop. You know, the, the, the D school has this long history of improv and having taught human-centered design thinking for a long time all of the, you know, our stokes and thing, warm, warm ups that are all inspired by improv. We just got done with our improv workshop and I was starting my first job, um, right out of grad school. They had me lead a project. So I'm leading this project. And of course, because I'm brand new and, you know, I went from college to grad school to work with no, you know, major work experience, except internships in there. I really felt the need to exert myself, you know, like, I really wanted to prove myself. I needed to get everything right. And we had to work really hard and I had the schedule and, you know, first impressions are everything. So I wanted to come across as a badass that I knew what I was doing, even though I was brand new. And another group was doing research on uh, relationships and they had hired a design firm to do this relationship research. And it included going to Burning Man and, at the last minute, the people who are supposed to go with the uh, design firm to Burning Man must have Googled what Burning Man was. And they were like, hard out, not doing it. No. Nope. <laughs> and so at the last minute, they had these uh, two open spots for someone from T-Mobile to go with them to do this research on relationships. And our boss in the, the innovation center said, does anyone want to go? And my colleague, Patrick, Patrick Carney, he said, yes, yes, I, I 100% wanted to do that. But I was the project lead. It was my project that he was cutting out of on a week. I said, no, I said, absolutely not. We have this work that we need to get done. You know, this is my first big job and I need to get everything right. And he said, okay, okay. Well, what if we got all of that work done in time with enough time that I could go on this trip? And I said, yes, and I'm going with you. (laughs) And (laughs) I found a bicycle in a dumpster. I put my stuff together, left like two days later. And went with my friend in a dumpster, which is a sober dumpster. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Got on a plane, went with Pat, my new colleague who I just met, 
and went to Burning Man with him. Um, long story short on the research, like we had a cameraman, we had a guy to do interviews. The cameraman left like after two sure. days, we never saw him again. We had created this TP that we were going to interview people. The TP blew away, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, it was an incredible, incredible experience. And, you know, that, that moment of really exerting myself and thinking it has to be this one way. And then just fully, you know, going with what was happening. My very first business trip was to Burning Man. I know Burning Man, people probably hate to hear it, but it's true. It happens. And it was, it was wild. This is an incredibly good yes and story. And I, I'm just going to be completely honest. I'm terrified of the idea of going to Burning Man. I mean, it's, it's a scary place, right? Like there's dust storms and we experienced all of it. And I was experiencing it with a brand new coworker. Right. In my very first job, I mean, there's so many great stories from that trip. I, I came back to uh, the creation center and my boss said, okay, well, you're, are you going to put together a report to share out of um, what you learned? And I said, my dog ate my homework. And he's like, that's fair. And we just moved on. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever gone back? I have not. I have not. Um, you want to? You know, I, I go to a lot of like music festivals and camping and okay, all okay. sorts of stuff. So I would totally go back um, if, you know, I had a, a nice crew to to go with. I think it's great. I think, you know, if, if you have even the tiniest inclination that you want to go, you should. Yeah. Um, but if you have the tiniest inclination that like this is not for you, then perhaps no. I mean, it, it's a it's a wild environment. That's and that fair. was back in 2007. It's been a it's been a while. I love it. The book is called Navigating Ambiguity: Creating Opportunity in a World of Unknowns. Your co-author is Kelly Schmoody. Andrea Small, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Getting the Yes Hand podcast is produced by the Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at the Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about the Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
recevoir. 